you are uh, waiting to get out of the hospital and you're maybe watching on the live stream or don't even have the energy to do that. Or maybe you recently got out of the hospital and you don't want to go back. Maybe you're waiting for things to work right again. In the last two weeks, I had two car repairs and one HVAC repair, and I'm like, what is going on? Right? And so that's just life, the way it happens. The Ukrainians are waiting for the end of the Russian invasion. In the Middle East, we saw the terror of Hamas attacks and the brutality against Israel. And in the resulting invasion, we are seeing the horror of war. This is why war is always a last resort because war is horrible. And we long for peace. Like, can we just wait? Like, God, would you bring peace now? We would love to have peace on earth. We're waiting for all these things to be made right in the world. The prophets are in this place of waiting because they're telling Israel of what is to come, but not yet here. And so they're saying, we have to wait. And we're going to read a little bit from Jeremiah today. And Jeremiah is a prophet. As he, writes, what, as he writes what we're going to read, he's in jail. Jerusalem is under siege by the Babylonians. The city is being torn down and the temple being destroyed. And they might be asking, where is God now? Where is God now? And then God gives Jeremiah these words. Follow along as we read Jeremiah 33, verses 6 through 16. Nevertheless, I will bring health and healing to it. I will heal my people and will let them enjoy abundance, abundant peace and security. I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity and will rebuild them as they were before. I will cleanse them from all their sin they have committed against me and will forgive all their sins of rebellion against me. Then this city will bring me renown, joy, praise, and honor before all nations on earth that hear all the good things I do for it, and they will be in awe and will tremble at the abundant prosperity and peace I provide for it. This is what the Lord says. You say about this place, it is a desolate waste without people or animals. Yet in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are deserted, inhabited by neither people nor animals, there will be heard once more the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the voices of those who bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord, saying, Give thanks to the Lord Almighty, for the Lord is good. His love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were before, says the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In this place, desolate and without people or animals, in all its towns, there will again be pasture for shepherds to rest their flocks. In the towns of the hill country, of the western foothills and of the Negev, in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem and in the towns of Judah, flocks will again pass under the hand of the one who counts them, says the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the, to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. And he will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. This is the word of the Lord. Did you notice, and there are the references to David? I, I hope you did. There was multiple references to David and to his house and to his line. 
You know, David, uh, King David, when he, we learn lots of things about him in the Bible. One of the things that we learn is that he knew something about waiting. Remember, he's the younger brother, and his older brothers go off to war, and he's waiting, watching sheep. And then as a young teenager, Samuel comes and anoints him to be king, but says, not yet, you've got to wait until Saul is no longer king. And then Saul doesn't like David because he finds out David is anointed to be king. And when Saul gets in his fits of rage, he's trying to kill David. He chases him around in the desert. There's a time where David's hiding in a cave, and, and, uh, and Saul goes in to sleep, and, to, and David's men say, just kill him right now. You're the anointed king. Take his life. We'll start the reign now. And David doesn't do that. He says, no, I will not lay my hand on the Lord's anointed. He says, I will wait until it's God's time. And so he waited. He was willing to wait until God removed Saul. Finally, he became king, and the nation prospered. Israel was rejoicing. It was great for 400 years. At the end of, well, not even great for 400 years. It was less than that. But after 400 years, when Jeremiah is writing, the Babylonians have besieged Israel. The northern kingdom's already conquered by the Assyrians. It's gone, decimated. The southern kingdom, so Jerusalem, the southern part of Israel, is now captured by the Babylonians and laid siege. And the people must be waiting and wondering, what happened? We need another David. Where's the next David? The Lord goes on. I didn't read this far, but if you read to the end of the chapter, the Lord goes on to say that as surely as the sun rises, I will keep my promises to you, to David's line, to the people of Israel. And so one of the things we are to learn today is that because God keeps his promises, we wait with active faith in God to make all things right in the world. And there's three points I'm going to make to you today, and we're going to try to do them quickly. The first is this, waiting for spiritual rejoicing and gladness. We see this in verse 11, where it talks about this, and it says, the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of, of marriage, right? The voices of those who bring thank offerings into the house, and they say, give thanks to the Lord Almighty, for the Lord is good. His love endures forever, right? Here's this language, everybody's happy and they're rejoicing because times are good. But when Jeremiah writes, they're not. People have been actually been exiled. Some of them are there. Many have been taken away to live in what is modern-day Iraq, uh, and they have to live there. But Jeremiah prophesied that after 70 years, they would return. And so around 515 B.C., they return, and they rebuild the city and the temple and get a foreign government to pay for it. That's what God does in his promises in that way. And so it get, the land gets rebuilt, and they rejoice. And once again, they're back to their homeland, and there's rejoicing in the Lord. This language, the Lord is good, or his love endures forever. It's the same language that David wrote. It's a song that he wrote in 1 Chronicles 16. It appears again in Psalm 96. It happens again in 2 Chronicles 7. And it's the language that he wrote in 1 Chronicles 16 when the Ark of the Covenant, which signified the presence of God among the people, was brought to Jerusalem to be put in the tabernacle there. And David sings this song before the people, has all the people he's appointed, and they sing this song, and it has those words in it that we read here in Jeremiah 33, 11. It happens again because David's not allowed to build the temple, but his son Solomon does build the temple. And when the temple is built, then in 2 Chronicles, Solomon has the same song sung. The Lord is good. His love endures forever. And was 
let me ask you this question. Was there rejoicing when Jesus was born? Let me think of the Christmas story, right? And there were shepherds abiding in the field, right? The great host, heavenly host of angels coming, right? And the glory to God in the highest. Like, joy, joy, yes. There's also joy that Simeon sees when Je- and we'll look at this a little bit next week, when Jesus is brought to the temple as a really young child and Simeon rejoices saying, this is the salvation of the Lord. Now don't miss what's happening here. At the temple when Jesus is brought to it, there's no Ark of the Covenant there. It has been lost to another country and battles wherever Indiana Jones couldn't even find it. Well, he did, but it wasn't really the real thing. Like, it's lost. The Ark of the Covenant's gone. In that temple, it's not there. The sign of God's presence isn't there. But when Jesus, as a baby, enters the temple, Simeon rejoices and says, I've been waiting for the consolation of Israel. This is the salvation of Israel. This is the presence of God among the people again, is what he is saying. And so what, what does this mean for you and me, right? God is saying that his presence isn't in the Ark of the Covenant, but it's in the flesh of Jesus. Are you waiting for spiritual gladness? Are you wondering, where is God when I can't see him? How, where is he? Look to Jesus. And then you will find joy and gladness while you wait for the return of Jesus to make all things right. The second point I want you to understand today is this, that waiting, that we wait for peace and prosperity. And we see this in verse 9, where it literally uses those words, that he will, he will bring them abundant prosperity and peace, that God will provide it. The hope, that hope that Jeremiah promised was realized when the people returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt it. And although under a foreign king, they had relative peace, especially under Roman rule, they had a time of peace, right? And I mentioned a, a minute ago about the shepherds. Let's put verse 12 on the screen. Notice what he says here. He says, this is what the Lord says, right? In this place, and, he, and in verse 13, he lists all the places around Jerusalem and the towns. It's towns, there will again be pastures for shepherds to rest their flocks. Now, what is he saying? He's saying, when shepherds can go out and rest their flocks and count their flocks, they're not counting the invading armies that are entering the outskirts of cities as they come across the shepherding fields on the way to the town. There's peace and there's prosperity because now they have their flocks again that have not been taken and, the, and there's abundant life for them. But more than that, I think Jeremiah is even hinting at what happens in Luke 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 8, when we're told, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby keeping watch over their flocks at night. And Luke is recalling, you remember what Jeremiah promised, what God promised through the prophet Jeremiah, that yes, there will be shepherds in the field. And that's when the peace that I'm going to bring is going to come. And so Jesus arrives when the shepherds are in the field because you know what? God is faithful to his promises. He keeps all of his promises. What I'm trying to get you to see is Jeremiah is saying a thing and God is promising it and in fulfilling it. And we see it in lots of ways through the New Testament. And so you might be waiting, right? You might be waiting for peace and prosperity and said, I'd love me some peace and prosperity. When can I get some of that? Maybe you're waiting for the assurance of prosperity from a job offer. 
um, maybe you're changing jobs or you're without work, or maybe you're a college student getting ready to graduate going, I really need a job. Maybe you are waiting the, the peace and prosperity of a college acceptance letter. Or perhaps you feel a lack of prosperity as you're trying to make ends meet. And that might be for different reasons. Maybe that's because of poor choices you've made financially that have put you kind of in a bind. Or maybe it's because just the income that you have and government decisions or inflation or whatever it is, everything in the economy that's pinching every dollar. You're like, man, it's tight. God cares for you in the lean times and in the prosperous times. You, know, you might say, well, yeah, but he said he was going to bring peace and prosperity. He did. He does, and he will. I want to remind you that you and I, sitting in this room, are among the richest people on the planet. We're, the, we're like, I think, the top 1% or like top 5% of wealth on the planet is represented here. Even so, we wait. And we wait for that final peace and prosperity in heaven when all things will be made right. We wait for that time. The third point is this, waiting for righteousness. And we see this in verse 15. This is the one I want to dwell on a little bit more. It says, in those days, and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line, who will do what is just and right in the land. This uh, corresponds to Luke chapter 1, right? Luke tells us about this, and he says, this is the promise, what the angel promises. In the sixth month, right, Elizabeth's pregnancy, God shows up and says to Mary, a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. She's a descendant of uh, the descendants of David. Okay, and then again in verse uh, twenty or thirty-two, thank you. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign forever. His kingdom will never end. You see, God made a covenant promise with David that says, "I will keep this, and it will be faithful to it, and carry it out." And the people have been waiting for the new David. And Christ is the new David, is what is being announced at his birth. That he will do what is just and right, is what we were told. And that means that he will both protect the good and restrain the wicked. And Jesus did that. He cast out demons. He stood against injustice. He helped the poor, the sick, and the innocent. And we're like, yes, go Jesus. We cheer for this. Get him. This is right. Fix it. Make it all better. Make all the suffering go away. Defeat our enemies. Stop the oppressors. Heal my cancer. Fix it, Jesus. Please fix it, Jesus. Jesus can fix it and sometimes does fix it. And sometimes he has us wait until heaven before it's all finally fixed and all made right. And yet you and I want the promises that sweep across history into eternity that God makes, we want all those now for us, right now for my life. Put them all under my tree this year. Thank you, God. That's not what we're guaranteed, that we get the peace and prosperity and everything we want right now when we want it for each and every one of us. What we are promised is that God is shaping the world, that the arc of history will change, and that God is going to make all things new. You and I right now are ambassadors of Christ working to try to help fight against those injustices, to try to heal diseases and do things that are good. But ultimately, that's happening in God's history, in his plan. 
And you might even say, well, that's nice that that's going to happen someday, but how does that help me now? Because, yeah, Jesus came, but he left. He's gone. Don't know if you noticed that, preacher, but he didn't want to stick around. Well, he said he was leaving to go prepare a place for us, right? And that he would come back to us and, and get us to take us to that place with him. And so we are like Israel in this way. They were waiting for the coming of the Messiah, the new David. You and I are in this time period between the first coming and waiting the return of Christ, who forever fulfills the line of David, waiting for that time when all things will be made right and new. We need to keep that perspective of history in our eyes, because that's not the way that modern people view history, or even future history. Forget the oxymoron there. Modern people believe in the progress of humanity. It's what they cling to. It's what they desperately want to make all things right. Our civilization will, pro will, progress, will make a progress, and it'll move forward, and we believe in this hope, whether that's through new rules or new rulers or new government or a new colony on Mars or whatever it is, there's the hope that mankind will achieve something and change the course of history and that through that progress we will somehow make all things right. The problem is we advance technologically rapidly and then we use it to make war on other people. We use it for good as well. Right? So all of our progress doesn't solve the problem of the human heart. And you might think, well, can't we just all get along and stop the wars and stop from people fighting? And let's just, let's just aim for peace and prosperity. Maybe we could write it down as a goal, like in a declaration or a constitution or something like that. Wouldn't that fix it? Not permanently, not fully, not finally, not completely. It's a good thing to aim for. But it's not the progress of mankind through human history that's going to change the world. And you might think, but I'm tired of waiting for it to change. David got tired of waiting too. You remember what Cosmos was telling us as we read the confession today from Psalm 51? How David got tired of waiting, right? He's got peace and prosperity. It's near the height of his kingdom. He sees Bathsheba on the rooftop and says, I want her. And so he gets her, has her brought to him. She gets pregnant. Instead of um, trying to own that and deal with that, he arranges for her husband, Uriah, a Hittite, a foreigner, to be put to the front of the battle lines and then the troops to withdraw so that he is killed in battle. That's how he covers it up or tries to cover it up. David was a shepherd boy. He was a giant slayer. He was an adulterer and a murderer. Even toward the end of his life, he took great pride in his military strength, counting them against God's commands, even to the objection of his generals and commanders, and he faced severe consequences for it. David faced many difficulties in his life, many from his enemies outside. There's constant stories of him being in battle, but so much of his trouble was his own doing. It was his own doing. It's a great reminder to us that the main problem in the world, the main problem in the world is not the lack of righteousness all around us, it's the lack of righteousness within us. 
because you and I can look around and say, could history just change? Let's just have everything change. But the problem isn't out there. The problem's in here. This is what is pointed to at the very end of the passage that we read in verse 16. Let's put that verse on the screen. It says, in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. And right at the end of it, how? The Lord, our righteous Savior. Right? This means that human achievement and salvation must, that human achievement isn't going to help us. Salvation must come from something or somebody outside of us. And Jeremiah is saying that's what's going to happen. And that is what happens in Jesus. The people will be known that their righteousness is from the Savior. We didn't read this, but if you were to look down in your Bible, if you actually have your digital scroll and you want to open that and scroll or in a paper book, you can look down and note in verse 18 where he says, let me find it here, nor will the Levitical priests ever fail to have a man to stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to present sacrifices. And that's right after this righteous branch will be the king forever. And what's Jeremiah saying? He'll be the priest forever. In other words, the way that all the things around the world are going to get fixed is not just by a king who is going to make all those things right, but by a priest who is going to make you right with God. And that's at the core of what you have to get. Is that, am I right with God? Am I right with God? What hope does that give you for today? You can wait for all to be right into, in the world until Jesus returns, because we're going to have to do that. But you can be right with God today. Today. You can say, okay, God, I, I'm yours. I need your righteousness, because my righteousness isn't doing it and there's not righteousness around me, I trust you. This righteousness, is the, it's an exchange. It's saying, okay, God, I'll give you all my sin, and, and you give me your righteousness. It's like the best fake ID ever, right? Jesus is saying, here, take my ID. And you're like, but it's not mine. And, he's, and you're like, but this is a good one. You get all of his righteousness credited to you, and you get to stand before God, and, and then he says, why should, why should I allow you into this kingdom? And you present your ID. He said I could come. It's on him. That's how you get in. I hope you know that this Christmas season. And if you don't, pray that today. It's not magical words. It's simple words. Lord, I'm a sinner. I don't have what it takes. I need you. I need your righteousness. Cover me with it. Give it to me. And help lead my life. You might say, well, okay, I've done that. What about when I mess up? What about when I crash and burn? Remember David? I mean, God still loves David. Loved David then, loves David now. And used him to write half of the Psalms. Even the one in which we used for our confession this morning. Psalm 51 after he's caught in adultery. And Matthew does something interesting in his genealogy. He puts David in the genealogy of, uh, or puts Jesus in the genealogy of David, enlisting him, listing David, as, quote, the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Forever enshrined in Scripture, for Jesus' line, is King David, the adulterer and murderer. Yeah, you're going to crash and burn. It doesn't mean God's going to stop loving you. 
God is kind to all the people who put their worst foot forward saying, this is who I really am. Because in Christ, the true and better David, Jesus put his best foot forward and said, I'll squash the head of the serpent for you. And I'll give you my righteousness. And that's what you need. So today, find your rest in God with spiritual gladness and in his righteousness. There's a prayer that you may have heard before. It's called the Serenity Prayer by Reinhold Niebuhr. I thought I'd read it or read this portion of it because the very end of it is exactly what Jeremiah was talking about and what we've said today. Listen to these words. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. It's usually where it stops on the memes. It goes on. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, taking this world as it is and not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Make that your prayer. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this would be our prayer, that we would trust in you, that you are the one who will make all things right, including us in our relationship with you, that you give us righteousness. So I pray that you will assure us that you have done that for us, for those who may be convicted or think, I don't know, I don't know if I really know this, Lord. Make today the day that they believe it and come to you to trust in you for their salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.